0: With pharmaceutical and biotech manufacturers launching more high cost specialty drugs and the insurance industry increasing the use of more restrictive barriers to access, those who need these medicines, the patients themselves, are often caught in the middle, not only shouldering the cost of higher copays and deductibles, but for many, rationing or even abandoning treatment altogether. While manufacturers invest in programs to help navigate the challenges impeding access and affordability, the entire healthcare industry can agree the status quo is unsustainable. There has to be a better way. And two industry veterans have joined forces to co-host a new interview-focused podcast to help shape the future of patient access and affordability. Welcome to the Prescription for Better Access podcast co-hosted by Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howe.
1: Welcome to episode three. Scott, can you believe it? We're already on our third episode.
2: It is hard to believe, but uh, I'm excited about and I'm really looking forward to our continued future as well, Mark.
1: Absolutely. Well, the first two episodes, the first one, we obviously we were fortunate to have Dave on talking about 2023 and some of the the issues and challenges that the patient access industry has to face. The second episode, again, very inspiring to have the patient voices. It's been a critical part of, obviously, both of our careers. And I think today, we have a real opportunity to look back with Peyton Howe and think about all of the things that have been done over the last three decades to try to help patients and also help manufacturers. So, really excited about today's episode.
2: Yeah, me too, Mark. I think it's a great opportunity for us to to learn from one of our earliest, most inspiring leaders in the patient services and access arena.
1: Great, great.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Peyton. We're uh, certainly glad to have you. We're looking forward to hearing your perspectives here, as I said, one of the earliest leaders in in the industry. We're gonna be interested in learning a lot from you about the evolution of patient access and the hub industry, including your reflections perhaps on some pivotal points in that evolution as well and what they meant for patients. I'd be very keen to hear as we go about your views on what you think is working well, and moreover, what needs more attention or better solutions for the future. We all understand there's work left to do. And then we'll wrap with, you know, maybe some perspective from you about where you think things are headed in your prescription for better access. Before we jump into all that, though, why don't we start with some background about your career journey? You've certainly had a very interesting one. And we'll come back to the years at LASH in a moment. But why don't we start with uh, how you chose healthcare, care and then maybe after LASH, the things that you went on to do at Amerisource Bergen and, and now are doing at ParXL.
3: Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I'll tell you, I've always been in healthcare. I was always passionate about healthcare. I actually worked in hospital administration during undergraduate, so to pay my way through college initially, and then went to Ohio State. So Scott and I have a number of things in common in addition to a last name in common, no relation. At Ohio State, while I was getting my master's in health administration, I had this incredible opportunity to work directly for the chief operating officer of the hospital. And she ended up putting me on a number of special projects that related to patient access. And it included figuring out how to optimize reimbursement for some new treatments that patients needed that weren't adequately fitting the existing reimbursement system. Also included something that relates to my current world, some things that were under in clinical trials that were creating significant costs, but we were seeing incredible patient outcomes and wanted to be able to support some of our key physicians in their development of those. So I had an early view to try and make a difference in terms of patient access to really the current treatments and therapies. And, and that's really how I got started, you know, in the field overall. And my entire career, the theme really has been all about patient access. So thank you for taking this on on this podcast.
2: Terrific. Well, and did, did you make the transition directly? Or I think there was some time in between that and perhaps your founding of LASH?
3: I did. I, I moved right, though, from graduate school into consulting. I was mostly focused on helping hospitals and sites, so the, the opposite, really, of what I ended up doing at LASH. And then I was approached by the partners who were creating LASH Group and were all hospital administrators, really, on developing a practice focused on the pharma industry. And, of course, this was the early 90s, so the beginning of Biologics. And some of our first customers were uh, companies we know well, like Genentech, who were developing amazing new treatments that didn't easily fit into the reimbursement landscape, and that was impacting access. Uh, When you think about the whole landscape you know, of products, uh, it impacted whether a doctor would prescribe it, it impacted whether a hospital would be able to supply a product like an Activase, for example. So some of those first-generation biologics. So I think I was really lucky to be in the first generation of specialty products at a time when you were focused on access and the exact kind of challenges I was trying to solve.
2: Yeah, that's great. Well, we're gonna wanna learn more about that But before we do jump into that, I know you went on to have a very distinguished career even beyond that at Amerisource Bergen and now ParXLs and maybe just share a little bit about that for our listeners as well.
3: Sure. I sold Lash Group early in my career in 1998, believe it or not, to what was then Bergen-Brunswick, is now Amerisource Bergen and is about to undergo another name change with that company. And really, it was a necessity. We really needed access to capital. So a lot of the same capital market dynamics that we are seeing in the environment today, we were growing rapidly. And in Amerisource Bergen, I had an opportunity to grow the business for about a decade and then was able to buy other businesses. So other access-related consulting businesses in particular, and then actually had opportunities to lead other parts of the business. So mostly all around specialty drugs, though, our community oncology practices, our hospital and specialty practices, and then ended up leading all of our pharmaceutical relationships globally, and even got a stint in Switzerland, leading that team from there for two years and setting up a global purchasing entity as well. So you're right, I got to see the whole cycle, if you will, of access to pharmaceuticals and new treatments and and how that actually works across all sites of care, which is fantastic. And then was approached to the one thing in pharma services I had never done, which is clinical trials. And I joined ParExcel, I'm now the chief operating officer there, and we run global clinical trials, and I'm challenging my team every day to really make sure we're not just getting through regulatory hurdles that we're really creating the evidence and the data to support patient access to care. Because ultimately, that's going to be critical. And certainly, the global landscape is suggesting we need to have that outcomes-based evidence and patient insights to really make sure we have patient access to the right treatments at the right time.
2: Yeah, it's become increasingly true over time, hasn't it, that the FDA regulatory label is, is necessary to be able to bring a product to market, but it's really no longer sufficient to ensure that patients get great access to it.
3: That's exactly right. Yep. So I'm on the other side of the reimbursement challenges now.
2: <laughs> yeah, terrific. Well, thank you.
1: Well, I think someday they're all going to come together, aren't they? It's all about. Yeah, it's all about the evidence, all about great drugs that make a difference. And that's where I want to sort of ask my first question, Peyton, if I could, about early in your career, right? The one or two sort of launches that really stand out that have stayed with you and you've sort of walked away from there knowing you, you made a huge difference. Which ones do you really, really stand out?
3: Yeah, that's such a great question. And thank you for asking it. I think we were all part of some of these important launches in the beginning. Um, Certainly, the very first program I launched was actually related to cystic fibrosis, something I know is near and dear to your heart, Mark. And and I as a consultant had recommended to Genentech that they deploy some of their unique strategies for Pulmozyme. And they asked, well, can you create that program? And you run it. And so that was the very first one that I launched as part of Lash Group back in 1993, obviously in those early days. And it was probably ahead of its time in some ways because it actually had more complex support in terms of true copay type assistance, really trying to focus in on those access needs. A very different one at the exact same time, though, was for the launch of the first oral treatment for schizophrenia. And that was for a pharma company that was really very good and generous about giving away free drug as part of patient assistance, but they hadn't put a reimbursement mechanism in place to help people get eligible for Medicaid and other types of insurance. As I would explain, and then I modeled it out for them financially, while they were helping, obviously, They weren't really solving the core problem, and people really needed access to physician care, medical care, and if we could help them, bridge them to Medicaid, but actually help them with the process of Medicaid eligibility, that would be a much better use of their funds. And I would tell you that program really has created explosive growth at LASH Group, and I think a really new model, if you will, in terms of looking more holistically at the patient, not just at free drug programs, which are are great and have their role, but thinking of those as a bridge to really access to care.
1: Oh, no, that's great. And I, th- I think it's important to mention that that's where I first got to know you as Pulmozyme because I was still with the CF Foundation running the pharmacies then and launched it from the sort of that perspective. So
3: small world.
1: We're, yeah, it is. And it's great that we're still able to do this and make a difference for patients. So if you could, can you spend a minute talking about sort of the evolution and where you started to see some of the barriers that had to be overcome along the way as, as more and more biologics were were launched?
3: Yeah, the first launches, I think, particularly for multiple sclerosis and for rheumatoid arthritis, even for RSV, are really where we began to see the real challenges with payers in terms of prior authorization and their number of requirements there, certificates of medical necessity, and just barriers that really were delaying patients' ability to access care. And that really changed how we approached everything in terms of of supporting patients. And it did require investment, by pharma companies, right, to really look at how do you support someone really with a full benefit investigation. We didn't have some of the electronic tools that I know you're developing now, Mark, to support some of that. So it was labor intensive. And it was always more complicated than people thought, right? You had, sometimes even had to check both a PBM, prescription benefit manager benefit, in addition to a medical benefit, look at the pros and cons of someone's insurance and make sure you're exhausting all of their options, define what actually had the least out-of-pocket cost for that patient. So, you know, it's almost like doing the work two or three times, if you will, on that specific patient. And I think those were some of the early, early challenges where the world really changed in terms of how we were supporting patients. I also realized then just how critical those services were for patients even accessing care both in terms of being able to start quickly as well as adhering to therapy. I mean, I really began to appreciate the impact we're making. And and I think when I look back at my career, those launches and probably Crixivan and HIV-AIDS are going to be the ones that I'm probably most proud of because, you know, there was an urgent need for those first generation of products and, and finally an offering for patients that did not have hope prior to that.
2: Peyton... You know, and to Mark's point, things have evolved quite a bit from the early times. I mean, PAs have been around for a long time, but they're used quite differently now in many respects than they were in the early days. They're quite ubiquitous for almost all the medicines, let alone the high-cost medicines, you know, branded medicines these days. And oftentimes too, you know, they're quite onerous. They can be quite lengthy and demand information, you know, laboratory information or medical records or those kinds of things. What's your reflection on how that happened, how that evolved, why it happened and how it's impacting things now?
3: Yeah, I never ever would have expected at this point, right, 20 years later for us to have the level of obstacles we do for patients. I really thought that that would be a short-term issue and that it actually wouldn't get more complex. And yet to your point, Scott, it really has. And, and I think it's something as an industry we need, we need to talk about, right, get patients more comfortable talking about. Because I think sometimes when you're experiencing it as a patient, you think it's just you, just that indication, just that product. And it's frankly not. It's actually a common issue and, and something I think we need to tackle with a lot more transparency. I know from physician practices and sites, they do not have the time to support patients on this journey. And a lot of times it does require their documentation. Obviously, you, Scott, as a physician, you should weigh in on this, right? I mean, it is a lot of unreimbursed work we're asking physicians to do today. And it is something I think we really need to tackle because for me, it really, for those that are underserved, it actually makes it even more challenging. So we're actually putting up gates that further really block and probably cost the healthcare system much more. You know, people like you and I can navigate them and we navigate them for our loved ones, but think of all the people who really just give up and give up for their family members and have no way to deal with the challenges and even understand what their options are in terms of accessing a very costly therapy.
2: Yeah. Well, as you know, inability to navigate the prior authorization is one of the top reasons that patients don't fill prescriptions or don't continue on them longer term. And it has gotten, you know, very onerous. And to your point, it's both creating wear and tear on the practices now and also a lot of expense. There's been actually a good amount of research over the last several years, including some that my teams did on both of those items. EMA often underlines physician attitudes about the prior authorization process and their experiences with that. And we did a cost analysis, a survey that we updated a couple of years ago and had published that estimated that the practices are spending about $43 billion a year in time and effort, opportunity costs, in, in navigating all this. It does beg the question of, at what point are we creating as much trouble as, you know, as we're trying to solve?
3: That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that could be a future podcast, I think, for us just to dive in on, on that exact topic.
1: Well, I think we're going to get there, at least get a few of your ideas in just a few minutes, Peyton. But I'd like to just, if I could, sort of go back because you touched on briefly the fact that you'd have to sometimes check the pharmacy benefit or the medical benefit as well. But, you know, to that point, can you help us help? sort of our listeners understand the whole challenge around care and how biologics have sort of transitioned from, as you know, you mentioned your backgrounds in hospital administration, but how it's sort of evolved over the years.
3: Yeah, the site of care of biologics is pretty dramatic, and I'm starting to feel really old, right, because I was there with some of the coaching and techniques to help move infusions from the hospital setting to the outpatient setting, and obviously now we have many of them that are now in alternate sites and home care type settings as well, and specialty pharmacies, now exist as a key source and really usually a partner, you know, as part of hub type services. And they vary, right? Sometimes they really can facilitate the access. Other times there may actually feel like another obstruction in terms of a gated way of accessing a product. And I think that is really just a factor of how unusual some of these products are, how costly they are, and how specialized the reimbursement is associated with them.
1: Well, that leads us to the, a moment you and I had shared uh, years ago When you asked, was it you or was it me that came up with the hub industry? And we're thrilled to have Peyton, who actually uh, coined the phrase the hub industry. So if you don't mind talking a little bit about sort of the history of the hub industry of Flash and about the evolution along the way.
3: Yes, I have been blamed. I don't know if it's accurate, but I've been blamed for the (laughs) use of the phrase hub. And in truth, right, we were trying to find a different way of saying what Genentech had already trademarked, which is having a single point of contact. But in some ways, it is unfortunate because I think the word hub may oversimplify the complexity of the role, the importance of the role that the hub plays and that care coordination support role and how many players might really be involved. You know, starting with the patient as always, the site and the provider, of course, the insurance or insurance companies, depending upon the situation and and medical and pharmacy is both included in that. And then the specialty pharmacy as another provider, obviously not writing that prescription, but supporting the fill of that prescription. You put all those things together and hub was really the term we we coined, but it's quite a complex. I mean, it's hard to think of very many parts in our healthcare system with that level of complexity. And that exists in a fairly virtual world, right? You can't feel it or, or touch or connect all those things. And electronically, they're not even that well connected yet. Although I think, Mark, you've made great strides to try and work on that. It's still certainly big gaps, right, across the industry in that connection. But yes, I do think it oversimplifies it. But hubs, I think, are now critically important for the launch of these products, right? I mean, you've got to take away the barriers to access. It's all about removing those barriers and and removing them efficiently for patients and sites. So, building
2: on that, Peyton, could you share a bit about your perspectives on the evolution of the hub industry, how it's changed, you know, from maybe what the focus may have been more on in the early days and now all that complexity that you described?
3: Yeah, no, I know you're right. It was really much more pharma directed in the beginning, which I think in some is the experience. You could control the experience. I think the experience is much tougher to control now. So I do really hear that feedback, you know, consistently because you actually have to, to play with all of the different sites providing the product. And, and I think that certainly is, is a new challenge. I also think, you know, there certainly are even more legal challenges too, right? It's a conservative industry and everyone wants to make sure they don't run afoul of anything that could even have the optics, if you will, of, of anything inappropriate. And I think that's another barrier for patients. They just want you to share their information. They know about HIPAA. They just want us to all work together and make it transparent. They don't see helping them as an inducement. They think it is something they deserve and they do. <laughs> so it is a very tricky you know, situation, right, where everyone's not aligned in, in a perfect way and it's a conservative industry to boot, right? So you put all those things together and the patient is sometimes really stuck trying to navigate more than than I wish. And certainly in my vision, this was all going to get much easier for the patient than it feels like today. And probably all of us have even seen that in our own personal lives.
2: It feels to me like there's so many more pieces today than than there were. And in the earlier days, a lot of it felt like it was helping the patient understand how to navigate their insurance and what the reimbursement was going to be and those kinds of things. And now you actually have to solve for a lot of that stuff. And whether it's, again, it maybe starter kits and free goods, you know, or maybe it's some needed laboratory testing and coordinating that, or not just understand what your copay will be, but how you're going to afford, you know, deductible and coinsurance and all those things. And so, all the elements now seem much more complicated.
3: Well, and the dollars are bigger, definitely. And I think genomics and testing is definitely a whole nother complexity. But you're right. I think, you know, even early on, though, I would say it was complex, but you had a little bit more control, right? We always knew, like, the patient's ability to pay that copay, et cetera, and just continuing to look for support. But de- it definitely feels like there's more additive components now. And the payers are much more complex.
2: Of course. Yeah. And how do you think the hub industry has kept up with that? I mean, there's a mix of models out there. There's, you know, some that try to cover as much as they can, others that specialize. How do you view all that?
3: Yeah. No, I I think it's mature. I know what I hear, you know, being not day-to-day into the industry is that, you know, there probably was A pivot where people thought technology alone could solve a lot of things. And what I hear now is that investing in this area is really important. I hear pharma sponsors talk about that actually pretty openly. You kind of get what you pay for um, into those services. And I think they now appreciate, right, you need it all. You need the technology to do the things that it can do, but you can't walk away from that connected experience that is very similar to a social worker connected care environment. You can't lose that because different patients, different disease states need different things. And that human intervention is unfortunately often still necessary.
1: If I could, I want to just sort of, you mentioned HIPAA a a few minutes ago, and I'd just like to, you talk about how this is a relatively conservative industry. And obviously we're working in, you know, with pharmaceutical biotech companies that are regulated and the pharmacy industry is regulated. But if I could, do you mind, like, I mean, I know I've been going for OIG opinions, right? You know, there's aspects to what we've done to try to like create something new that had never been done before. You just had to, you know, how do you sort of force through some of these things? But can you mind spending a a minute talking about how legislation or the government and sort of the different groups have sort of influenced sort of the overall industry and what we do?
3: Yeah, I do think the unintended consequences of good ideas is always there. And I do fear for that, frankly, even in new legislation with, you know, IRA and and what that will look like. It's the rule of law unintended consequences is palpable in our industry. So I do think that anti-kickback laws, the Stark laws, even in terms of self-referral, all of the OIG opinions um, that we trying to be helpful were sometimes just more confusing, I think, for pharma companies to interpret and rely upon. So I do think it's actually more challenging. And I think you see that now with, you know, limits and restrictions on the types of support that a pharma sponsor will typically provide. They might provide free drugs through a foundation, they might provide support perhaps through charities that, that can support patients, but it's completely disconnected, which mean that means the patient experience is repetitive, redundant, time-consuming, frustrating. All those things that I thought by now we'd actually be able to go the reverse way and connect. And again, it's not like people had bad intent. It ju- truly is unintended consequences. And how about your perspective? Another
2: major change driver over time has just been consolidation of all the players in the industry as well. And we're seeing even more of that these days now with uh, vertical consolidation. So could you reflect on your experience through that lens a bit? Peyton?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's I guess there's been consolidation in some ways. There's also been new entrants. So in some ways, it feels like there's more players. But the consolidation of payers and PBMs probably is an area of concern for me, just because it feels like that has actually gotten more complex for patients when you, again, thought it would have gotten easier and that some of the barriers would have been reduced. They actually haven't been reduced. I do think that could be an area of opportunity for the future. I'm, I'm encouraged by seeing more people talk. About how do we create more transparency, PBM transparency in particular, and having more formulary related transparency, understanding those pieces, and for specialty pharmaceuticals you know with a chronic disease where you might be on that MS drug for the rest of your life, it's critical that we make it as easy as possible
1: and Peyton, if we could on if we could transition sort of to that brings us to a good place, which is like where we are today, like where do we see it in the market today? And I think your perspective in your role at where we're actually looking at the incredible pipeline, right? And so we are confident that the drugs that's in the pipeline are pretty amazing, right? Help us understand your perspective on the state of the industry today and the obstacles that we're facing and where we could potentially start to think about doing things better.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, and certainly what attracted me to clinical trials was the opportunity right, to be able to put more of the evidence, but also be part of the next wave of breakthrough products, and there's a lot of exciting products coming. I mean, I think that's, to me, what gets me out of bed every day, because it's hard to do clinical research right now, given the constraints on sites globally, but particularly in the United States. But the science is absolutely incredible. And that means from a patient access perspective, we need to do everything we can right now to make sure we have a system ready for these products. Almost half the research I'm doing today is actually in in different oncology products. Many will be for rare oncologies. These are the exact type products that really can be very challenging for patients to access if we deploy all the same requirements that we have today for the much larger products because they're not going to have the kind of support services necessarily surrounding them. So it's an absolute perfect time, I think, for us to really be able to look at how can we bring more transparency to the system? How can we help make navigation tools that really are patient oriented? I think we all want to be able to control our own access to care as much as possible. And how can we also be able to make sure the data is there so that we can, to Scott's point, take away some of these barriers when the data really supports it and reduce those costs? We need to get more efficient. And that's the only way to really take true costs out of the system, is to be able to let the data show us where it really isn't helping us overall.
2: Yeah. Do you see any inspiring emerging examples of those kinds of approaches, Peyton?
3: I don't. I do not see any great examples I'm excited about. I'm sorry to say, but um, there's a couple of of interesting white papers coming out right now that I'm encouraged by. Last week's ICER report, I think it was called Barriers to Fair Access, is a good example. And I think they're taking on health equity and how we really connect health equity with some of these traditional barriers and how it really is a a double negative for patients, particularly of limited means. And I think that could be a really good area for us to focus on. Because if we can solve it, right? For the person that has the most challenging access situation, we've solved the problem. So for me, so let's focus you know, our resources there.
2: Well, I think we'd all agree there's plenty more good work to be done. If you had some advice for Mark and me as we look out into the future for our podcast, what are some of the areas that you think are important that you'd like to hear explored?
3: Yeah, with your expertise, boy, I would love for you to make it simple for the average family to be able to understand how, when they're faced with, you know, the need for a chronic or disease or a high-cost biologic, you know, how to navigate the system. What should they consider? You know, one thing I've been encouraging people to do every year is just part of, you know, kind of your preventive medicine is to really review your health insurance. And does it meet your family's need, but also your personal ability to navigate? For example, those high-deductible plans and HSAs can be, huge cost savers, but you have to be really, really willing to consider them as an investment and spend an incredible amount of time to navigate it. They do pay off then, especially if you're, if you're healthy or if they've got a good prescription benefit along with them, even if you're on chronic meds like I am for asthma. So they can be good, but if you're not prepared, to navigate that system, they may be a terrible option for you. And you may be much better off with something that really is going to associate, if you can afford it, associate with the kind of choice and flexibility you know, that you need. And I think stepping back from your health benefits, even sometimes getting one help from professionals to help you assess is something that we really need to encourage people to do. And really looking for what types of resources are available overall. What does a pharma company offer? How do you navigate that? And how to leverage the great you know programs that different hubs that are available to help patients and their families.
1: Peyton, if I could, I'm going to try to now sort of bring this from the history to today, if I could. You mentioned, obviously, some of the incredible drugs in the pipeline that are not it doesn't line up for the barriers that exist, right? So, for example, you copays. Let's talk about copays, you know. Do you mind talking a little bit or, or maybe even Scott as well about how copays and some of these other obstacles have evolved over the last couple of decades and why why they don't work for the drugs that are in the pipeline today?
3: Yeah, I'll start and Scott, I think with your expertise, I think it'd be great for you to add on because when I think about the products we're working on right now in gene therapy, I don't know how this is going to work. Right in an efficient way that works for society as well as for patients. So I think we definitely have some challenges on our hands. It used to be actually easier to support a patient of a financial need with a copay and be able to validate that process. Now it's obviously much trickier. We have more restrictions on copay programs, more for commercial patients, and that leaves patients that are, for example, on Medicaid or Medicare and and perhaps disabled and thus on Medicare due to disability but a young age out of the access to those programs. And that's a key issue that we have to tackle. The accumulator programs, for example, to me, are good examples of what is the copay that's acceptable for patients and how do we really make access to these therapies more affordable. And it does feel like an area that we could do more.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree. It has been, a, in some respects, an unfortunate evolution of a management technique or whatever. But if I look back, the early days, there were a lot of 2 tiers formulas. You know, there was a lower cost share or copay, it was a fixed copay for generics and a higher one for branded. And that was effective, I think, in encouraging generic use. And so the idea extended. This is the way that a lot of this works. And it's back to your point earlier about unintended consequences. But then so then the three-tier came out when there was a copay for preferred brand that was a little higher than the generic, but not as high as the one for the non-preferred brand. And that was a clever way to handle things and influence patient choice for a period of time. And then as more and more high cost specialty medicines, you know, hit the market, and as the Part D program launched, we had the development and evolution of the fourth tier co-insurance. And then as high deductible health plans, you know, became more of a thing, we got high deductible (laughs) pharmacy benefits, higher out-of-pocket maxes and all those things. And that combination now, unfortunately, of high deductibles, co-insurance and a branded market that is generally focused on very small populations and therefore very high unit prices has just become a very toxic combination for patients. It's a real challenge, as you know, even for the industry to help patients navigate that all. And now it's evolved to where it's just pure cost shifting in many instances with these tactics, the higher deductibles and coinsurance and so on. And certainly now with the evolution of the accumulators and maximizers, it's it has been a tactical back and forth and it's it's hard to, it seems unproductive now, but I'm not sure we have a solution on what to do better.
3: No, we don't.
1: <laughs> well, I think one of the things we're, we're, we are seeing is some sort of early attempts with warranties. I know one was announced last week as well, but in your role, right? You're, again, your current role, you see the the value of these early stage, right? The tremendous miracles that are happening. And there's more manufacturers that seem to be putting more skin in the game or willing to put more skin in the game. What do you think about, I mean, people talk about value-based agreements, maybe they're, they're not all there, but is there ever a time where we see a sort of like a new kind of approach to what manufacturers are willing to do and, and have a new type of agreement between payers?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I certainly hope so, and I hope the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA is not an impediment to some of that because, you know, you would really like to see that work the same for all patients. And are we just going back to a two-tier system and how will the constraints of the Inflation Reduction Act actually impact pharma and and their view on on drug pricing more generally and ability to to provide support? So I think that, for me, is a a question we definitely need to attack. But I'm hopeful, right? I mean, we have done great things in the past decade. I mean, one that I failed to mention was the elimination of pre-existing conditions. This might be one of the most important things that happened in our lifetime. We all worked with patients where that was their barrier to access to care. And was frankly a very frightening scenario for so many families. So, you know, if we can eliminate things like that, it gives me hope that we can challenge some of these other things. I, I love the focus on value, right? On patient outcome and on health equity. And if we can keep making sure that we bring that to light, we can actually help balance some of the narrative because pharmaceutical companies are doing fantastic things. Some of these products are expensive, but they're for a very limited number of patients. And we want to make sure those patients get affordable access to them.
1: That's great. You know, Peyton, you mentioned hopeful, right? And I think that's something that you and I have always sort of every day we wake up hopeful about changing the future. When you look around at the industry today and you look around at how there's more, whether it's more hub companies, more technology, more especially pharmacies that are engaged, What makes you hopeful about this industry and how we're all sort of teaming together to try to make a difference?
3: Well, I am hopeful in that I just see the interest and awareness, I mean, it's just amazing. When you think back, there were very few companies focused on this and now there's different types of companies to your point, including technology focused companies that are really focused on patient access. I think that's exciting. I think having the great minds, if you will, of health insurance come together to help us solve these and look where we can take out costs certainly gives me hope as well. I know we haven't made some of the advances there but that we'd like to have seen. I still can't believe some of that's not more automated to be honest with you, but we've seen some pieces, you know, of it and certainly you know, this past year gives me more hope that this is an area of focus even for the government to support in terms of standardization, which I think is is really exciting. And then I just certainly hope we do everything to continue to make this industry of innovation, of new medical breakthroughs to be one of the strengths and pillars of the U.S. economy. I do think that's challenging, but that is where we stand today. And I, I hope that's something we continue to support because that means... We get first access to these treatments. And as a, someone involved in global care, I can tell you that is a privileged spot to be in. And it's one I think we need to protect.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Well, summing up, Peyton, we're going to ask for your advice for ourselves and for all of us, really. But we'd be interested in hearing what's your prescription for better access?
3: Yeah, my prescription for better access is first of all, to all be better educated consumers, to really focus on understanding our needs, and for all of us that are in the industry, to really make sure we are being that voice, that voice on transparency, simplification, and really the voice for those patients that don't have a voice. And it's as simple as that.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, this is great. Thank you, Peyton. Thank you for taking the time. This is just a real treat. It's just a real thrill. So thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you for taking the time to be able to put this, you know, out there for for people and hopefully raise the dialogue across our industry.
1: Well, that's great. Scott, do you want to take today? What are some of the takeaways you're you have from our discussion with Peyton today?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy. It was, you know, a really fun conversation, as we expected, I think, Mark. But some highlights for me, it was fun just reflecting with Peyton for a moment on the early history of the launches of the biologic products and what that meant in terms of patients and needing help to navigate their hubs or navigate their insurance and then the the role for the hubs in the hub industry. It was interesting to hear also how things have become more complex and even more challenging over time and in some respects The disappointment with that and the lost opportunity, perhaps, in automation and and simplicity. We heard some good examples around prior authorizations and copays, obviously. There's been burgeoning growth in the hub industry to support all of this, but also burgeoning growth in the complexity and the challenges. I was interested and excited to hear Peyton talk about the role, the growing role, really, of data and evidence uh, for these medicines and the hope, again, of connecting that in the future to a better, more simple, more sustainable pricing and access system for the medicines, and and her broader hope for the future with all the emphasis on this these days, solving it, the role of technology, the new ideas. And then lastly, just something that's come up before in our other conversations, but her hitting the highlight about the importance of being informed, you know, and having access to information and being informed and able to navigate all this is, I think, something that is striking me as foundational. So... Anyway, wonderful conversation, Peyton, and I'm glad to be part of it.
1: Well, I think the other, the other side of this I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say is that we, as a group, it's unfortunate that we all have to be so informed. On our second episode, we have both a trained lawyer and a PhD who are both patients, and they feel, in their cases, that you almost have to have that level of education to be able to navigate the system. So, that's something we have to change. You shouldn't have to be a lawyer. You shouldn't have to be a PhD to be able to navigate the healthcare system. So how do we keep doing better to make it better? And I think that one of the big takeaways I took from, from our conversation is that the pipeline is so exciting and it doesn't line up well with the way the barriers are today. We have a coming accident. It's like seeing two cars come together in an intersection, and we're there witnessing it just beforehand, and we have a chance to do something about it. And so, anyways, I think that that's something that for me is really resonates. Anyways, those are those are just a couple of things I wanted to add, Scott. All right. Well, with that, we get to wrap up episode number three. And again, thank you to Peyton Howe for joining us. A true one, one of the true pioneers of the hub industry. The creator of, the, of uh, uh, whether she wants the, to take it or not. We are so thrilled that, Peyton, that you joined us today. And I just want to say again, thank you to my, my co-host, Scott Howe. And thank you to all the listeners. We're out now on Apple or Spotify or others. So wherever you're getting your podcast, we encourage you to register or sign up or follow us. And we will have for you a chance to learn more about or to reach Peyton and to learn more about her company and others that we talked about today. We will have show notes that we'll be publishing as well. So with that, thank you. Thank you, Peyton. Thank you, Scott. And let's all keep doing everything we can to have a better prescription, uh, uh, work together on a prescription for better access. So thank you.
3: Thank you.
2: Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Peyton.
0: Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you.